There will be a not-so-subtle shift as Jesus lays some hard truths on the future for the disciples, and in many respects, all believers from this time forward, pain and persecution. So on that cheerful note, uh, let's go to God's word and be instructed. John chapter 15, beginning with verse 18. If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not, done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, The Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Thus ends the reading of God's word. A lot going on, once again, in this part of uh, St. John's writings, but um, there are three main themes here that I want to focus upon today. One hatred of the world toward Christ and all those who follow him. Two, non-Trinitarian religions will not sneak under the wire into heaven. Three, the economic trinity at work as a spirit is expressed in history. So let's begin with number one. In verses 18 and 19, Jesus makes it clear that there is something fundamental to the human race, whether they know it or not. That's a hatred toward God. If you read the Old Testament, this is a common theme that comes out over and over. There's the scarlet thread of redemption that runs from the Garden of Eden forward, and there are those on the Lord's side, and there are those that oppose, right? And there's, of course, a a spirit that continues to rise up over and over. It it reminds me of that quote from Lord of the Rings, that there's an evil that never sleeps. An internal impulse of power that governs the souls of the disobedient, that pulls their souls down to hell, where they go willingly in their rage against God. With the coming of Christ... That which was prophesied about him from the beginning becomes flesh manifest for all to see and take their vengeance upon. The wicked gnash their teeth against him and the word he speaks unto them. 
Most importantly, they hated him without a cause. That's why in verse 18 and 19, Jesus makes it clear that there will be trouble for those who follow him. The wicked suppress the knowledge of God in unrighteousness, as St. Paul makes clear in Romans chapter 1. And so they are driven by the power from below to live wild and free and, uh, unfortunately, cause a lot of trouble in the meantime. The revolution eats its children, but not soon enough, and they cause a lot of destruction in the meantime. But the disciples, however, the disciples have been made free after their rebirth in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, according to the eternal decrees of God, as mentioned in Ephesians chapter 1. These men, unlike Judas, are no longer the natural man trapped in the Adamic curse that receiveth not the things of the Spirit, as St. Paul wrote about. These men, the disciples, are no longer governed by the elemental principles of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. They are new creatures in Christ. The implications are quite stunning, as St. Peter made clear in his epistles. Years after this gospel was written, believers are now members of a royal priesthood, a holy nation, Thus, they represent the Most High God. They are special, and thus they have a target on their back. When one reads this part of Scripture, it's easy to be struck by the strangeness of it compared to the first half of chapter 15, which talks about love and relationships and so forth. In this part, we learn that if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they hated me, they will hate you. In other words, if they reject me, Jesus tells his disciples they're going to reject you because they reject the Father who sent him in the first place. It's all about me, brash and bold statements, right, that Jesus makes. But that's the whole point of the gospel. It is. It is all about Jesus. In the objective sense, if it's the case that Scripture is true, then and only then, Can it make sense for Jesus to say these things that are so brash and pointed about the importance of himself in people's minds? And that's a part of Jesus' words in ministry that usually isn't focused upon, right? The stunning things he said and the natural reaction to them. People are going to try to kill you because of me is essentially what he's implying. So far in our journey through John, So far, there's been lots of temper tantrums and name-callings and arguments and threats, but no one's really gotten hurt. No stones were thrown, no baseball bats swung. As Jesus said, in this world, you will have persecution. St. Paul wrote to Timothy that those who seek to live a godly life will be persecuted. Jesus is continuing to warn them about what is coming. He is leaving, and they will be on their own. Yet he is going to send them a helper, in some translations, the comforter. What does that mean? He's never talked about that before until this very chapter. And one is tempted to ask, why the hate? Can't we all just get along? But again, in the point of the Bible, that must never, ever be forgotten. Even in our own day, as we live in a spiritual world, 
There are unseen forces for good and for evil that vie for control of the souls of men and women. They are engaged in a war for the hearts and minds of men and women. So even though we might be tempted to say, oh, this is so much stuff and nonsense, and people have better things to do, the fact remains people will kill for what they believe in as well as for what they don't believe in. Think of the mindlessness of our philosophical opponents who oppose the gospel. They say there is no God. Similar to Pontius Pilate, they ask the question, what is truth? Yet they argue like demons against the claims of the gospel and the whole idea that there is an actual moral principle governing the world in the nature of reality. For them, the claims of the gospel are so much stuff and nonsense, wherein you could suggest the spaghetti monster exists, or the man in the moon, or that the moon's made out of cheese. Why not, right? Yet if people tell us this, or tell you that you're going to go to the man in the moon, you would laugh at them. You'd say it's absurd. Yet any mention of Jesus and final judgment in hell and people go ballistic. Any mention of the Ten Commandments, they gnash their teeth. Why? Well, St. Paul makes it clear in Romans chapter 1 that all men know the truth but suppress it in unrighteousness. In his epistles, St. John makes it clear that essentially there are only two spirits in this world the spirit of Christ and the spirit of Antichrist. And, of course, the spirit of Antichrist encapsulates all other religions and all other philosophies of life that men have come up with in opposition to the truth of the gospel. Both have different objectives, these two spirits, two objectives in people's lives. One seeks to pull you down to hell, and the other seeks to renew your hearts and minds and lead you to heaven. And there's a cost, a cost to the discipleship for these men. That's what Jesus is warning them and consequently us. Number two, after 9-11, who can forget when President George W. Bush stated on national TV that both Christians and Muslims worship the same God? It was quite shocking. It's on YouTube. It's all the same, right? The problem is, all religions, although similar, they are not the same. All religions, although similar, are not the same. They have deep, different presuppositions on reality, different presuppositions on the nature of reality, different presuppositions on the human race's place in said reality, and of course the moral systems used to govern that reality. Equally, all religions promise different things regarding eternity and what's needed to achieve the supreme good of eternity. Although Christianity is an all-inclusive, welcoming religion, the fact remains that even though God accepts us as we are, he nonetheless expects and demands change. Change as in repentance. You may come into the kingdom as a thief, a liar, and a murderer, or what have you, but you better repent of those sins quickly and not commit them again. They are not acceptable any more than fornication, abortion, abhorrent sexual practices 
or lies and deceit or endless boasting or temper tantrums. Scripture tells us to be perfect even as our Father in heaven is perfect. And if you went to the Greek word there, it means to be mature, to grow up into the image of Christ. You could see that there in the end of Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, but equally in, in Ephesians chapter 4, and the, the purpose of uh, teachers and preachers in the church is to perfect the saints. Most importantly, in going back to the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, we are admonished in Psalm 2 to kiss the son lest he be angry and we perish in the way. We are told without a doubt who is the king of glory, the Lord strong and mighty. He is the king of glory before which every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. We are told to embrace the work of the cross by the one who is the head of all things to whom be glory forever and ever. If not, we are doomed in this world and we are damned in the next. This is the same Jesus who said it would be better to have not been born or to have a millstone tied around your neck than to cause the youth to uh, stumble and fall in their faith. And of course, that's what's going on here in the state of Illinois with this new legislation, right? Where it's illegal for parents, or it will be made illegal if the bill passes, it'll be illegal for parents to forbid their children to have abortions and so forth. The Father hath sent his Son to exegete himself to the world, hence Jesus' own statements, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you reject whom the Father hath sent, the Father will reject you. And that's it and all about it. It's not for no reason that Jesus states, what shall a man give for the price of his soul? In other words, what do you have to offer God? going to keep you out of hell. People then and now seem to think that they can meet God on equal level and dictate their own terms. And of course, this is incorrect, horrifically incorrect. God is the one that dictates all terms insofar as what is pleasing in his sight and equally what is not pleasing. God sets the rules of engagement both in this world and in the world to come. God is in heaven and man is on earth. Therefore, let man's words be few, as Ecclesiastes tells us. Last, number three, the Holy Spirit, first and foremost, is a person. The Godhead, or divine nature of God, if you prefer, is one God in three persons, same in substance and equal in power and glory. The Holy Spirit is not a force or energy or some tinkling sparkle fluttering about the room like Tinkerbell and Peter Pan. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is a member of the Godhead that is entwined within said Godhead as mutually and exhaustively as is the Father and the Son. This was settled in an initial sense with the Nicene Creed in 324 A.D., but then exhaustively in the Chalcedon Creed in 451 A.D. Read them both. Consider and ponder them both. The Spirit has personality and authority. The Spirit also has power and was there from the beginning of creation, as Genesis 1, verse 2 makes clear. The Spirit is the life-bringer, as Genesis chapter 2 makes clear, when God the Father 
breathes the breath of life into Adam, the man of clay. Jesus made clear to us in the Gospels of St. John in chapters 3 and 6 that our rebirth also comes from the Spirit of God, not our own will and spirit. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast, as St. Paul made clear. However, in an ominous sense, the Spirit can also be the death bringer, as St. Peter noted in chapter 5 of the book of Acts, when he tells both Ananias and Sapphira that they have not lied to him but the Holy Spirit. Christ makes an important point in this chapter, John, about the ontological trinity. Both the Son and the Spirit proceed from the Father. And yet, in a way past our understanding, Jesus also is the sender of the Spirit from eternity as the comforter and guide as he made clear in our verse today. And this and other verses, of course, is the source of that separation between Eastern Christianity and Western Christianity. Western, whether it's Roman Catholic or Protestant. The Church of the East only states in their version of the Nicene Creed that the Spirit proceeds only from the Father, period. The Western version of the Nicene Creed eventually would be changed during the Filioque controversy, which began in Spain during the 6th century and essentially finalized with the split of the church in 1054 AD between the East and the West. And that decided that the Spirit proceeded from both the Father and the Son. This was and remains the separation point between East and West in terms of their theology, and in some respects it affects even their ecclesiology. Eastern Orthodoxy, whether Greek, Serbian, or Russian, is very patriarchal. Um, their archbishops are called patriarchs. Eastern Orthodoxy is very top-heavy. And although Trinitarian, both Son and Spirit proceed from the Father. In God's providence, the geographical separation runs along the Theodosian line set down in 395 AD, when the Emperor Theodosius divided his empire between his sons. One son got the Greek-speaking eastern portion of the Roman Empire. His other son got the Latin-speaking western portion of the Roman Empire. And that line of division exists today, from the Baltic Sea down through the western Ukraine, all the way down to Serbia and Greece into the Mediterranean Sea. And historically, even down into Africa, there is the East and there is the West. The only change is that from the 14th century onward, or excuse me, 7th century onward, the East is now partially Muslim and Arabic speaking. But as can be seen from the current war in Ukraine, that division still exists. In fact, if you go back to the 14th century, the Germans sent the Teutonic Knights to try to bring that part of Russia back under the fold of Roman Catholicism as opposed to Eastern Orthodoxy. And incidentally, the Ukraine was the very birthplace of Russia in the city of Kiev when Vladimir the Great took the city from his brother Yaropolk and converted his people by the sword to Eastern Christianity. So history aside, the separation of the East and West remains a source of disagreement and theological tension, as we know. And adding to the East and West split regarding the place of the Spirit, 
There's also the split between Catholicism and Orthodoxy and Protestantism regarding the inclusion of Mary as this odd fourth member, if you will, of divinity. And again, that's the same between Protestants and Eastern Orthodoxy. Granted, the Roman Church and the Eastern Church would say that I am wrong. Mary is not a god. And of course, I and hopefully you would counter by saying, then why worship or pray to her? What about the theological concept found in the Catholic Catechism to this very day of Mary as the co-mediatrix, the co-mediator, the co-redeemer? Especially when we see nothing of the sort in Scripture. Again, another sermon to be sure, but in St. John's Gospel and the Synoptic Gospels, we never see Jesus refer to Mary by any other name than woman, which is a title. And when he mentions it, it's with respect, but it's only woman. There is no queen of heaven. She was a woman who sat at the feet of Jesus, just as the other followers of our Lord did and do to this day. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Mary is not one of them, period, end, full stop, end of story. As St. Peter wrote to Timothy, there was only one mediator between man and God. As St. Peter wrote, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved. Jesus is, as St. John wrote to the seven churches of Asia in the book of Revelation, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, the mighty God of heaven and earth. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. Mary cannot help you. And no one comes to the Son unless the Spirit makes him alive, as John notes in our previous chapters 3 and 6. And that Spirit only goes where the Father hath determined before all ages and before the foundation of the world, as St. Paul notes in the first five verses of Ephesians chapter 1. That is the Trinity expressed in history for the salvation of God's elect. This is true whether we like it or not, believe it or not, or understand it or not. Again, our lack of understanding is due to the noetic effects of sin within our hearts and minds, not through any failing on God's part. Yet, in spite of our sin, if we stay with the Bible, we will not get lost in the traditions of men or as St. Paul notes in Colossians chapter 2, the false philosophies of the world. Let us give thanks to God for his grace that we may trust and obey the words of Christ given us in his gospel. Amen. Let's pray. O God, who on the holy mount is revealed to chosen witnesses thy well-beloved Son, wonderfully transfigured, in raiment white and glistening, mercifully grant that we, being delivered from the disquietude of this world, may by faith behold the King in his beauty, who with thee, O Father, and thee, O Holy Ghost, liveth and reigneth, one God, world without end. Amen.